so I'm going to I'm just going to talk about something. I want you. I'll give you the title first. The title of this is the grasshopper myth. Okay, the grasshopper myth. What's that about? That's about when they were going to go into the promised land and Moses sent them in to spy out the promised land and they came back out of the promised land and instead of seeing all the good things that God had there for them, they saw the difficulties in taking possession of it and they saw the opposition. And there's this, this sentence in, 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 the, in the scriptures where they, they reflect on that and they said, and, and they saw us as grasshoppers and so we became in our own sight. And often when you're, you're on your own or you're part of a smaller church or a smaller outreach team or uh, trying to establish something, you feel small. You feel like you, you haven't got everything you need. You haven't got all the resource you need. And only if, if only we were bigger, if only we were a church of 500 or if only we had... Uh, our own building or if only we had this or if only we had that or if only we could uh, have all the technology running smoothly and you know all these things and we can always look at what we haven't got so I want to encourage you this morning not to think of yourself as grasshoppers I want you to think of yourself as a giant in Christ because that's the truth of who you are you have Christ living in you and small Actions of faith can create massive change. And so the question isn't about what size we are or what, what gifts, abilities, talents, skills you have as an individual. The question is about how much you're going to let God do through you. Because he has everything you need. You know, we, we, one of the things these days is we can achieve a lot without God. We can achieve a lot because we've discovered that the, the, the internet and social media and uh, TV and all the rest of it and lights and smoke machines and everything attracts people. But the truth is that God builds in a different way. There's nothing wrong with any of that. It's just that when it gets in the way of the power of God working to change people's lives, we need a different approach. But also, we've got to recognise that, that us as individuals, or us as smart, part of a smaller body, or us as part of a, a, a pioneering youth work, or pioneering outreach, or pioneering prayer team, or, or whatever, we've got to recognise that what we do has incredible value in the kingdom. Because if we do it in faith, God can do something way beyond our own abilities to do it. Do, do you get that? So Jesus, when he was um, on the earth, he was discipling his disciples. You know, that's where we get the word from, discipling the disciples. But the point was that he was trying to train them in the ways of the kingdom. And the really important thing for uh, us as, as leaders of this church is that we equip you to do everything that God has for you to do. So our job is to equip and teach and train, like Jesus equipped and teach and taught and trained. And in Mark chapter 4, um, which I have bookmarked, he, he's talking to the disciples about how the kingdom of God works. You don't, you don't need to look this up, but if you, uh, if you do want to find a place in your Bible, how many of you got your Bibles with you? Wave them in the air. Go on then, fighting the enemy, fighting the devil. 
show him it's open. Yeah, this is good. You don't know how much it annoys the enemy when he sees an open Bible getting read. It scares him because he's, he's thinking it's only one step and he'll start believing it and doing it. And then he's in trouble. So Mark chapter 4 says this, How shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parables will we represent it? It's like a mustard seed which when sown upon the soil, though it's smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil. Yet when it's sown, it grows up, becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest in its shade. Here's the point of that. A small action taken in faith can have a multiplied effect when God uses it. And there's a principle that you, you, you know, I, 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 I very rarely hear this talked about, but it, it's, a, it's a principle that you see right through scripture. That when a small action is taken, it has a domino effect. And that's how the kingdom works. The kingdom works by domino effect. Sometimes we try and barge into it and try and do it our way and think that we can establish the kingdom by all sorts of different things. But basically, the kingdom works by domino effect. It works by growing. One person affecting another person affecting another person. That was Jesus' way of teaching the disciples at this work. And what he said is, if you plant something, if you do small thing in faith... God will produce something big from it. That's the way this works. If you, if you start out small, the kingdom naturally grows. The, 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 the kingdom is all about growth, but, but the point is it starts from something small. And so when we do it God's way, he can take something small, our ability, our uh, talent, whatever we think, well, we haven't got very much of. He can take that, and make it into something that has a bigger impact. And so, as you've had a preview of my video, this is, this is actually, uh, in the Guinness Book of Records, this is the biggest domino topple. So, can we try and start it again, John? And then you'll see the principle. Can we do this, John? No. Not at all. Are you ready? I'm ready.
Right, so you get the idea now. But basically what I want you to see is this, that the, the guy who pushed the first domino did that. Okay? The one that fell over at the end took a forklift truck and a crane to put it in place. There's no way he could have pushed that over. But by doing that small thing, it created a domino effect. And what Jesus is saying when he's talking about this parable of mustard seed is the way that that's the way the kingdom works. That he takes our small actions of faith and he uses it to create something that has an impact way beyond the size or the strength of the person at the front. And that's really exciting for anybody who's part of the kingdom of God because it means that whether you're on your own or you're part of a body of 10,000, you can still have kingdom impact. And so when we moved to this community, uh, we, we were a bit smaller than we are now, but we're still having kingdom impact and there's more to come. We might not have like all the resources in the world, but God is doing things. And as long as we, we walk in faith and stay true to what God's asked us to do, that's what he'll continue to do. Now, I want to show you this because pe people go, well, well you know, I, I get that a bit about mustard seed, but look, show, show me how this works. Show me why. You see, we do a lot of things and, and churches and, and as individuals, we can put a lot of effort into things that don't produce very much. And, and it's not that we aren't faithful and it's not that we don't have a real burning desire to see God move, we, we, but we, we need to do it according to the way the kingdom works and put our effort there so it can get multiplied by God. And so we can have some great ideas which won't work. And we, you can actually burn yourself out having lots of great ideas that don't work. And so it's much better to do it the kingdom way. So let me show you this. Paul is uh, in Acts chapter 16. So if you've got your Bibles open, you should have got found out it's chapter 16 by now. Paul is uh, looking at going into an area in northern Turkey that he wants to visit again. He's been there. He's established some churches. They're doing really well. They're thriving. He wants to go there again. And what we find is that Right at the start of chapter 16, Paul's about to set off for this area. And it says that the Holy Spirit stopped him. I, I don't know how the Holy Spirit stops people. I, you know, like we can come up with all sorts of ideas and theories. But let's just say he knew it was the Holy Spirit and he knew he wasn't meant to go. I don't know how that happens, but he did. And what happens is, so he starts to say, well, okay, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? And God said, and he had a dream, and God said, sent this, in this dream, uh, somebody who he describes as a man from Macedonia who said, come over here. So he sets off for Macedonia. Now, what I want you to see there, first of all, is that Paul was being obedient to God, but actually the logical thing wasn't for him to do that. You see, the logical thing was for him to go and build his churches in, in northern Turkey because they were thriving. They were doing great. I mean, just like how big a congregation could he have had if he'd just like gone back there then? It's, it's kind of a funny thing. Like Jesus kept walking away every time he got a revival going. Have you ever noticed that? He's got like 5,000 people and he gets on for boat and abandons them. 
You see, the kingdom doesn't always work according to numbers or strength. The kingdom works according to following the voice of God. And so he goes to Macedonia. And, and the reason that's a funny place to go is there wasn't anything there apart from a little place called Philippi. Now, we all know Philippi. Now we go, oh, that must have been an important place. It was because Paul wrote a letter to them, the letter to the Philippians. Philippi wasn't an important place. However, what it was is it was at the uh, intersection of several trade routes. So people used to go there and swap their, their goods for other people who came in from different trade routes. And so Paul goes down there in obedience to God. And this is, what, this is where we, we get to, and I'm in verse 11 of chapter 16. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and on the day following to Neapolis. From there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in the city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we supposed there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who'd assembled there. So, the first thing I want you to, to see here is when I said that Philippi wasn't a big place, it was a strategic place. Like, compared to London, Manchester, Birmingham, lots of other places, Cambridge isn't a big place. It's a small town. And yet, in worldwide terms, this is an incredibly strategic city. Probably one of the most strategic cities on earth for shaping governments, politics, law, all sorts of things. And so... Whilst we, we might not be in a massive city, we are in a very influential place, just like Philippi. And um, Paul, he goes down to, he said he went down, supposing there'd be a place to pray. Paul, up to this point, had always done the same thing wherever he went. He went to the synagogue first. Now, in Philippi, there's no synagogue, so he can't go there. So he goes out looking for people to pray with. And... In doing that, he goes down to the river and he finds a group of women. And um, he meets this lady and she's called Lydia. And a certain woman named Lydia, verse 14, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshipper of God, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptised, she urged us, saying, "'If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord,' Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us to come with her. Ladies, shut your ears. Men, have you ever been prevailed upon by your wife or, or by another woman to do something? The, the answer is you can't say no, can you? That's like what Paul's experiencing at that very moment. He's like being prevailed upon by Lydia. She's one of those forceful ladies. It's a bit like, you know, um, Cheryl. <laughs> Telling me I had to change my preach for this morning. That's my revenge. Oh, it's a bit like being paid for by Joyce. You know, you know you've been paid for when you've been paid for by Joyce. Don't you just love Joyce? Don't you just love the way she goes through it in worship and prayer? It's just fantastic. Fantastic. But he finds this lady called Lydia. So she's reasonably wealthy she's a trader in cloth she's got her own business she's also 
probably one of the most important people apart from the apostles in the New Testament. She's the first European convert. The first convert who wasn't a Jew. More than that, though, she becomes somebody who causes the entire ministry of Paul to be financed. She was strategic, but she was one woman. So Paul hasn't gone to build his, his church in northern Turkey. He's ended up in Macedonia. He can't find a synagogue, and he ends up talking to a woman who says she knows all about God. And he starts to explain to her that while she might be worshipping God, she actually needs a bit more than that, and she needs to be born again. So it says that, that, that God opened her eyes to see, as Paul was explaining. The point of that is that God meets you where you are. He knows exactly what to expect from you. And more to the point, he knows what he's going to make of it. See, God doesn't look at who we are. He looks at who we become. And he places his faith in who he's going to make you to be. And that's what he does with this lady, Lydia. And, and, and Lydia gets baptised and she invites them round to their house. This little church, starting with Lydia and her friends down by the river, is going to tap a domino that's going to impact the whole of Turkey, Greece and Asia. Remember that domino effect. So you've just, you might not have noticed it, but you've seen the domino, domino tapped. The point is, the enemy's also seen the domino tapped. And he doesn't like that. He wants to stop that. So, you know, we don't get everything our own way. What we get is we get to win. But do we don't get to win things without battles to win things. And the enemy, what he does is he sends, he sends an obstacle that looks like it's a, it's a good thing. He sends somebody who apparently is going to support Paul's ministry there. Who bigs Paul up. Now, listen, listen to this, because the first several times I read this, I didn't get a clue what was going on, and then, then God just showed me it. So verse 16 to 18. And it happened as we go into the place of prayer, so they're going back to pray again. A certain slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So she's known to have a demon. She's known to fortune tell. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, these men are bond servants of the Most High God who proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very moment. Now, I just want you to imagine somebody coming after me, walking along here, perhaps, perhaps uh, who could we pick? Annette. Annette. So, no, no link with the slave girl, because Annette's, you know, I'm not making any suggestions, but Annette, who is a fortune teller, and, and is, she's coming after me, and I'm preaching, and wherever I go, she's shouting out to people, listen to this man, he, he's preaching the way of salvation. How cool would that be to have that in your ministry? Yeah, wherever you go, guys, you know, like, guys, when you go back to me, how cool would it be to have people follow you around and say, 
Man, when that guy was doing those Star Wars impersonations, he's preaching the way of salvation. Yeah? So how, how good, you, you can follow me around. How good would it be having, having like that endorsement, just following you around all the time? It would be cool, wouldn't it? What does Paul do? He gets annoyed. It's, it's weird. Thank you. Okay, uh, thank you, Annette. <laughs> What does he do? He, he confronts her and casts a demon out of her. What's the issue? Why, why would he take exception to somebody saying he's preaching the way of salvation? Let me, you can't believe this, Yvonette, so I won't use her again, Okay. But let's say that everybody in this room knew that Annette was into the occult, she had a demon, and she was a fortune teller. And that person is endorsing the ministry of Paul. What message does that give? That message gives, it doesn't matter what you believe, it's all one, we're all okay, everything, le- everything leads to God. You, you can get into all this spiritual stuff, all this occult stuff, it doesn't really matter. Just, he's a lovely guy, that Paul. Just listen to him. And, and while you're at it, I'll tell your fortune. What's my point? Well, my point's the same as Paul's. Is you cannot compromise the gospel in order to grow and gain. Because ultimately, it'll destroy what you're trying to do. Everything isn't all right. There's God and he's all right. Amen? Amen. So the enemy does that. Now, having failed at that one, he uses a second tactic. So the first first tactic that God will, will do is he'll bring people along that ultimately you aren't meant to run with. And, and it bring people into your life who, who offer to help, but actually are really bad for your ministry and, and really bad for what he's doing in your life. You see, not every, what's the word? Not every gift horse is a gift horse. Yeah? Yeah, sometimes they're a donkey. <laughs> or an ass. <laughs> they're not. You have, to do, you, you have to be wise in who you run with. And you have to be wise in who you let into your life. You want people in your life who'll build you up, encourage you and point you to Jesus. Not people who'll big you up and tell you you're fantastic. They're two different things. There's plenty of people who'll big you up and tell you you're fantastic because they want something. And they're with you and they're around you until you stop being fantastic. And then they're out of your life. That's the way that works. So the second thing which is a bit of advice for sort of the way the kingdom works, is this. What they they then find themselves is that creates such a kerfuffle that they end up in jail. So Paul and Silas end up in jail as a result of dealing with a slave girl. Now let me tell you a little bit about Philippi before I get on to Paul and Silas. Philippi... We know about because we've got the book of Philippians. 
The church in Philippi, archaeologists tell us, records of the time tell us, never ever grew to more than about 75 or 80 people. It was never a big church. It was never a church that really sort of expanded and took over its city or anything like that. It was a small church. And yet for Paul, it was the church that he was most confident in and it was the church that supported his ministry. You see, Paul planted some churches and they grew like Topsy and they were like massively spiritually gifted like the church in Corinth or the church in Thessalonica. They were rich. They, they had everything going for them. And yet Paul relied on Philippi, which never grew to more than 75 or 80 people and, and was probably led by a woman. She's certainly influential there. What's the point of that? The point of that is that a small body can do big things for the kingdom of God. In 2 Corinthians, you find Paul basically talking to uh, the church in Corinth and, and he's taking an offering. And Corinth is a big, rich church. And he turns around and he says... Um, to them, he, he says that they need to learn from this church in Philippi. He calls it the church in Macedonia in the letter, but it's the church in Philippi. And he says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches in Macedonia, that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their giving. So Paul's commending this church and he's basically saying they are afflicted, they are like hemmed in, they've been persecuted, they have nothing. In fact, they, they live in poverty and yet they're known for the giving. Isn't that quite astonishing? You know, sometimes we, we get this idea, well, if only I had more, I'd give something. And God says, no, he says, you haven't got the point here. And yet we, we think, well, we have got the point. And yet, listen to this. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Begging us with much entreaty. So basically getting down on hands and knees and pleading Paul to take the money. And he's gone, no, you can't afford it, guys. And they're saying, no, we want to do this. And they're pleading with him to take the money. For the favour of participation in the sport, they said, and this, not as we had expected, but they gave themselves, first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So this church that starts with Lydia and these ladies, by then has such a heart for God that it gives beyond what it has. And Paul says, let me help you understand the kingdom. That's because this thing isn't about money or wealth or talent or ability or anything. This thing is about your heart. And they're able to do that because their heart's right. 
because they realize that although they're small and seem to have nothing, in God, they have everything. So they can attempt things that they don't have the ability to do because they know that God has the ability to do it. They can be generous because they're not relying on providing for themselves. They know God will always come through for them. They got their heart sorted in order to um, pursue God and that resulted in small acts of faith that changed other churches. Because Paul said that to Corinth and Corinth then had to come up with the money. Because he's saying, guys, this isn't a test of money. You know, if you, if you have a, a need or, or, or a shortfall, it's not a money problem. It's a faith in God problem. And we have to do things kingdom ways. Anyway, getting back to my point. The point is that the kingdom doesn't work on the basis of what we have. It works on the basis of what God has. And that means that we can do more than what we have. We can have a bigger impact than we're equipped to have personally, you know, that we could do from our own strength, our own efforts. One person can change the world. Twelve people created the, the whole Christian movement. How many people in this room? Well, including the kids upstairs, I don't know, like 115, 120 this morning. We can, the effect of that, if we got hold of this principle, is incredible. Everybody in the kingdom gets to punch above their own weight. Because we don't punch our weight, we punch his weight. And the enemy will try and stop that. He's going to try and get you to stop and back off. And what he does is he throws them in jail. Now, this isn't, if you, if you looked, I, I guarantee you, if we had a leaders meeting or we had a church meeting to discuss the circumstances, it's not going well. Like, Paul has ignored his church growth opportunity in northern Turkey. He's, he's ignored his revival going on there. He's gone somewhere that, there's no church. He, he, he's converted some women who, who aren't Jews. And he started a church down there. And now he's in jail. Having th because he cast a demon out of a woman that was supporting him. It's just not a good pattern, is it? It's not really a good ministry growth response. What's the response to being in jail? Paul's got this brilliant response. He goes, Silas, we're going to sing. <laughs> we're not going to look at the fact that I've, we've been beaten with rods. We've had the skin ripped off our bag. We're lying here bleeding. We've been bruised. Our bones have been bruised. We're in chains. We're in this dungeon that stinks. There's rats chewing at my feet. And what are we going to do? We're going to sing. And we're going to praise God because our hope isn't in us, it's in God. Yeah. You know, when you're doing something for God, you will have multiple opportunities to give up. 
Multiple opportunities to give up. The enemy is absolutely brilliant at giving us opportunities to give up or back off. The great skill of the kingdom is not to take the opportunities the enemy gives you to give up. You, you, you don't win a fight by never getting knocked down. The people who win the victories, the people who overcome, are just simply ordinary people who got up and tried again one more time than they'd been knocked down. I'd like to give you a really glowing thing of like believing Jesus and everything's perfect in your life and gold falls from the sky and you're happy. We, we, we don't live in that world. <laughs> what? This is a great morning. It's just like... It's like, it's, like, it's like rolling back the years. Even Logie's heckling. It's brilliant. It's fantastic. I, I love it. I love it when Logie heckles. Brilliant. It, it means he's listening. <laughs> you know, when we look at us, we can get overwhelmed and just crushed by circumstances and stuff that happens in our life and, and quite honestly we don't help ourselves because we mess up a lot as well and we all have opportunities to give up but if we don't take them we'll win it's guaranteed but you've got to go through to see the victory And they had an opportunity to give up. Now what happens? This thing. So your response to the opportunity to give up is to fight back. And how do you fight back? You fight back by declaring the word of prayer over your life and by worshipping and praising God and being thankful. That's our weapons. Prayer, the word, and thanksgiving. They're our weapons. That's how we fight back when we're losing. That's how we fight back when we've been knocked down. That's how we fight back when we've got nothing left. You can lie on your proverbial prison floor of your life and you can still sing. And you can still praise and you can still thank God because he's your hope. And so they do that and... They get busted out of jail by an angel. The, the whole place opens, the doors open. Now, given that, you know, Paul's been pretty good at taking everybody's advice so far, what does he then do? He stays where he is. <laughs> it's not a good escape plan, is it? Hey, all the doors are open now, but I'm going to stay here. Why? Because he's met this jailer who's about to kill himself because they're escaping. And he, he hasn't fulfilled his responsibilities. And he leads the jailer to Christ. It's not a logical thing to do, but it's a God thing to do. Why can Paul do that? Do, have you ever asked yourself, why does Paul do these crazy things? He does them because he's confident in God. You don't do those things without being confident in God. 
If you're not confident in God, you're out there. And you go like, oh, well, that was kind of lucky. That angel turned up, innit? Busted that gate. We understand that the kingdom works by the small things we do. So Paul's done a small thing with Lydia. He's done a small thing with the jailer. Let's go to the end of the story and see what those small things produce. Because basically what they then do is they force Paul out of Philippi. And he goes on and he ends up in this place called Thessalonica. Thessalonica is destined to be one of the uh, bigger churches, more influential churches. Here's what happens. He goes into Thessalonica... um, I'm back in Acts now, chapter 17. I'm nearly finished. I know we're finishing slightly late this morning, but I did really want to get all those testimonies in. Back in Acts chapter 17. And they go into Thessalonica, and I'm in verse 1 and 2. Now, when they travelled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So where does Paul go? To the Jews first, synagogue of the Jews. According to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining, giving evidence to the Christ, had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, who I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded, so some people get saved. Join Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of God fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. Isn't that interesting that? That Paul has just got kicked out of one place. He goes in somewhere else. And now Jews are starting to get saved. God-fearing Greeks are getting saved. Multitude, great multitude of them. And a lot of the leading and influential women. I find it astonishing. I mean, it's not astonishing now, but I'm finding it astonishing that 2,000 years ago, somebody put a sentence in there and said a number of the leading women. Why? Why? Why were all these women getting saved? these important women why were all these god-fearing greeks getting saved why were all the jews getting saved i'll tell you why they were getting saved and he tells you here the jews became jealous and taking along another opportunity to give up and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar coming upon the house of jason they were seeking to bring them out from the people when they didn't find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have set the world have come here also. Some translations say these men who have turned the world upside down have now arrived here. These men who changed, did all that in Philippi. These men who were busted out of jail by God. These men who saved the jailer and then his family got saved and all the people around him got saved. And these men who led Lydia to Christ and she's got everybody funding all everything they're doing. And they're casting out demons and they're healing people. And now they've come here. How did they know? Because somebody tipped over a domino called Lydia when Paul met her by a river and its effects have now spread right through the whole region and Paul's reputation and the power of God has got there before him. Lydia was one woman. Paul was one man. 
And yet the influence right across the region is incredible. 